By now, we are no strangers to seeing plant-based patties in supermarkets. Many people have tried it, but not everyone is returning for more. The alternative protein industry is now trying to solve this by racing to dish up the next big innovation. This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Liang Lei. As part of a series of podcasts in association with taste and nutrition firm Carry Group, we'll be talking about what's happening in the laboratories and test kitchens of alternative protein companies. Meat analogs have been around for a few years, but the industry is far from mature, with new technologies and new products in the pipeline. Think milk made by microorganisms instead of cows, or entire fillets of fish instead of ground-up patties, with the fish, of course, in inverted commas. Why are alternative protein firms diversifying into new directions? What can we expect in the years ahead? And how should we view all this in light of both a slowing world economy and the slowing growth of alternative protein markets themselves? Joining me on the Eco Business Podcast are Jennifer Morton, Asia-Pacific Corporate Engagement Specialist at Good Food Institute, a US-based alternative protein think tank, as well as Mindy Levey, Senior Global Marketing Manager at Kerry. Great to have both of you with us. Thank you for having me. Before we dive right in, I'd like to ask about a pretty recent and I think pretty big development that the US Food and Drug Administration cleared a cell-based chicken product for human consumption. Just wanted to hear from both of you what this means for, for, for both the industries and for consumers. Uh, Mindy, do you want to start? Thank you. Um, so I think this this milestone is very uh, promising. You know, we need to uh, diversify the pool of alternative protein. Uh, we can see that the market uh, and also legislation is setting up uh, a landscape enabling innovation in the space. Uh, we are all conscious that cultivated meat is a very promising way of addressing many of the uh, ethical and environmental concerns associated with the conventional meat production. Uh, we can also see that regarding sensory texture properties of uh, cultivated meat versus uh, versus animal-based meat, uh, the category is showing similar results, which is very promising also. So we know that with plant-based meat, there is also challenges regarding taste and uh, texture. Uh, so that's good to see that um, cultivated meat uh, might be a good alternative here. For sure, food manufacturers will have to focus a lot on communication and positioning to increase the consumer acceptance uh, with that category. Consumer acceptance, I'm sure that will be a theme as we go along, you know, talking about the diversification also. But Jennifer, just wondering, you know, the US is a huge market from the Asia Pacific perspective, you know, from where you are in Singapore. What what, what do you see this development as, um, I mean, the implications for this region? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting place because I am in Singapore and it's been the only country in the world that has approved cultivated meat for uh, commercial sale for the last two years. So obviously it has a big significance, uh, especially for Singapore. And I think there are two reasons why it is. The first is food supply resilience. So Singapore is investing in alternative proteins as a pillar of its food security strategy. So the success of the alternative protein industries like cultivated meat is another tool within Singapore's diversification toolbox um, by which to increase its food security. There are certain things in the alternative protein industry that is a leveler. It's good for everyone because the global market cannot develop, the investment will not come unless there's that size of the market. From a second perspective, Singapore does not have land. It does not have a big population. It is not a low-cost manufacturing hub, but what it is is a global innovation hub. So from that perspective, 
think Singapore is going to have to position itself within the CM industry if it's not going to be where the manufacturing happens. And I think there are a few opportunities there. So Singapore can help to level up the industry by maybe being more in a specialized niche. Um, so some of those areas that still need research, things like production inputs, like growth factors, like cell lines, so all the things that the cultivated meat industry needs to grow and develop. So Singapore could have a role in exporting these kinds of cultivated meat solutions to the world as that innovation hub. So on the one hand, a great plus for the whole industry. On another hand, we might see Singapore uh, potentially specializing in different areas to really add value to the CM. That was two great points, right? At the same time, you know, it's a it's a growing, it's a big market in the US. So there's some areas for collaboration. At the same time, you're saying that Singapore can specialize. So definitely something to watch in this sector. And yeah, while we are watching the, the, the US market, let's jump right into our topic that we want to discuss today, diversification. So we have been hearing a lot about this, right? Diversification is almost like a buzzword in the alternative protein sector now across a lot of different areas. Um, from production to products and technologies. So Jennifer, I'm just wondering, just to stay with you for a while, in terms of looking at the overall um, the industry, what, what does diversification mean and what are the key trends? So I think of diversification on two levels. And the first is that macro. So the bigger, the story that's bigger than alternative proteins. So when we're looking at where we are in our current agricultural system and our supply chains, we have very few commodity crops, which are very high yielding. A lot of that is cycled through livestock uh, to produce our food and 75% of our land using livestock, but to produce you know, less than a third of our protein supply. So in a longer term view, it's very brittle and it's risky. So we saw that with COVID. We saw that with the Ukraine crisis. And now the big umbrella, of course, is climate change. We, we see we have a different operating context that we need different guiding principles and different production systems to give us a system that's more intentional about how it uses resources and that is really fueled by diversification. So then when we dig a level deeper and go into alternative proteins themselves, you know, these products are more sustainable, but a win-win for, you know, planet for health doesn't necessarily mean that they sell. So these products have to be as tasty, as nutritious, as accessible as affordable than their conventional meat, eggs, dairy counterparts in order to sell. And how we get there is no silver bullet solution. So there are a couple of ways that I look at diversification within the sector. And the first is ingredients versus. So this is mostly within the plant-based sector, which is the biggest pillar of alternative proteins at the moment. And at the moment, we're relying on soy and wheat as protein sources, um, but we need to diversify beyond those. You know, the climate is changing. Sometimes those crops aren't going to grow in those places that they're growing now. We need more regional solutions. So there's some crops, for example, soy is not grown in Asia, but mung beans are. So there's different crops that can be used as a protein source that we really haven't explored. That is something that we need to do a lot more work on, um, which is already going on in the industry. The second bucket is production systems. So one of those is, is plant-based, and there are two others which are very important. So the second is fermentation. We are looking at how do we use that in new ways for plant-based meat, eggs, and dairy. One is using microorganisms to produce large protein quantities very quickly, biomass fermentation. So we have, again, another source. So looking at fungi, looking at algae, and so on. Then we have precision fermentation, and that's where you take microbes. So it could be a yeast. 
and encode that with certain genetic sequences for a protein that you want to create. So you can basically replicate uh, animal-based protein, but in a different source, so not using an animal. And the third pillar is cultivated meat. So cultivating meat directly from cells. The third really important diversification is products. So we have a lot of beef burgers and chicken nuggets in the plant-based sector, for example, but we need, especially in Asia, we need pork buns, we need shrimp dumplings, we need localized products that fit eating vacations here. So these, all of this diversity needs to happen. All these different avenues have to be put together. Awesome. That was a that was a great overview of the sector. Um, I would love to dig deeper into some of them. Um, Mindy, can I ask you? Um, in terms of you know the production and the ingredients side, based on what you see in the industry, what's the hot topics in this area? Where's money going to? And perhaps also, are there any blind spots or areas that deserve more funding? It's um I think Jennifer summarized very well like the different um I would say uh, strategies in terms of diversification uh, in the alter alternative protein sector, um but then it's true that there is also innovation additional innovation opportunities, uh or I would say innovation platform that will drive further uh, technology innovation in the space. In addition to, for example, cultivating meat and fermentation, for example, um, we, we talk also at the moment about uh, 3D printing, uh, shear cell or, or spinning technologies. The thing is like for these technologies, I would say that scalability is, is uh, the main challenge and is going to be essential to make them successful uh, to be able to, to reach um, the level of uh, other innovation uh, technologies uh, such as um, cultivated uh, meat or, or fermentation, for example. Then in terms of land spot, uh, I would say that being able to, to bring technology combination also can, can be a good strategy to bring like endless uh, combination of texture and flavor profile in the space. So this also, I think, might have uh, people should uh, maybe focus on a little bit more. Uh, and also when I'm talking about um, trying to do technology combination, so we, we're talking here about uh, hybridization. Uh, of alternative protein. So for sure, this is an area that needs more more attention, in my, in my opinion. Gotcha, Mindy. And, and just to, um, in your response, that you mentioned scalability as kind of one of the reasons driving diversification or at least uh, innovation. I'm just wondering how, how big a consideration is this? Because when we look at scalability, it's kind of, you know, like after we experimented with something, now let's look at how to expand the production. I'm just wondering whether it's a case now where scalability is a big factor when we even start the R&D stage. Yes, in my opinion, uh, scalability is should be like um, a key point to take into account in the innovation, um, I would say, channel, because uh, there is a lot of technologies that have a lot of potential. But then, you know, it's, you know, the main, you know, our main goal here with alternative protein is being able to feed people with a sustainable and uh, a high scale so that's that's true that the scalability is key here to be able to bring these on a large you know on a large perspective so um and i think like this is also the scalability was also one of the key challenge for some of these technology to be able to get the attention and the funding that they needed 
so for sure, for all of the new technologies that are going to come in the future, scalability really needs to be uh, taken into account uh, to make sure that this can be a sustainable and a long-term innovation in the space. Awesome. Thank you. And, and Jennifer, uh, my, my next question is really based on what Mindy has also talked about in terms of hybridization. To, to me, that sounds like a recent development. In fact, uh, my colleagues at EcoBusiness recently covered it in Explainer, I think last month, um, basically talking about hybrid meat, where, where companies are mixing conventional meat products with alternative protein or plant and cultured meat. I'm just wondering, you know, what's installed here? Why, why do this hybridization? Um, is it something that will get the consumers interested? What's, what does it mean for them? So it's important to start, of course, with, with why, because when we're adding a cultivated ingredient, say, into a plant-based product, you're probably going to add cost. So why are we adding this other tool to the toolbox? We have to do it to allow plant-based products to inch closer to biomimicry, uh, replicating the meat, eggs, and dairy that they're trying to replace. And I'll talk about plant-based integrating with a fermentation direct ingredient or a cultivated ingredient as this is where we see a lot of development in the sector. So the sustainability is the, the big benefit of alternative proteins, but that's the process is not something that consumer easily sees. So all this has to be about the product. So there are a few things that happen when we add, say, a cultivated ingredient to a plant-based uh, product. So the first one is taste, and this is usually why this happens in the first place. Plant-based products have gone through immense development. They are tasting better every day, but there is also a lot of room to develop. And that is the number one pushback from customers around why they're not adopting these products in, in a bigger way. So what cultivated ingredients can do is level up the taste, the texture, the smell. And because it's really coming from animal cells, it really has that starting point um, of all the things we love about meats or eggs or dairy in those products. The second part is nutrition. So if it's relevant to a certain product, you can bring in, say, a cultivated ingredient and you can better match the nutritional profile of that product that the company is trying to replace. So there's, for example, a fish company who's saying bluefin tuna is one of the best products for omegas in the world. Over time, they hope to dial up their cultivated fish product even more so, so they can add even more omegas. So there's an opportunity because you're cultivating it, right? You can dial up and down certain nutritional benefits that can enhance the final product. So if you can do that and add that cultivated ingredient to a plant-based product, for example, you can dial up the nutrition, you can potentially also uh, result in a cleaner label, which is something that is important for uh, health considerations of some consumers as well. And the third benefit is around affordability. I mean affordability when you have a 100% cultivated product. Uh, so these products typically will be closer with biomimicry, but they are very far away from scaling in a you know, way that can satisfy everyone's you know, evening chicken. So having, and the rates of inclusion is not really known at the moment, but have saying a certain inclusion level of say a cultivated ingredient and a plant-based product, you're not now paying for an 100% cultivated product. You're getting the benefits, but at a lower inclusion level um, with plant-based ingredients that are typically lower cost. Basically three main points, right? Taste, nutrition, and affordability. Uh, Mindy, is, this some, is hybridization something Carrie is looking at? How does it view it? And also one additional question for you. I mean, when you would, I mean, plant the animal-based products together, are there more regulatory hurdles that you then have to cross before it becomes a product to market? 
So, um, yes, for sure, like hybridization is something that uh, is a hot topic in the in terms of innovation in the alternative protein space. And this is something that uh, Carrie is, is looking at um, on, the, on a global perspective. Uh, and then for sure, uh, when here you're talking about re regulatory, when I'm talking on a global perspective, for sure, according to the market, there will be some uh, regulatory challenges and regulatory differences. Um, so that's uh, that's that's a very I would say uh, exciting space. Uh, there is a lot of reasons to explore that hybrid space, as uh, Jennifer mentioned, and uh, for sure this is something that Carrie is, is looking at at the moment because there is a lot of potential, especially as you know we have today uh, a lot of challenges in terms of price, in terms of taste, in terms of texture for that space. For sure, um, trying to bring all of these technologies together uh, is going to bring much more potential in um, in that space. Awesome. And Mindy, just to stay with you for a while more, um, I mean, earlier on, we also mentioned about diversification in food products, right? The end product, what, what, what can it replace? Um, I'm just wondering, uh, looking across the geographies that Kerry operates in, uh, what was the next meat product or what's the next food product that is ripe for replacement with alternative proteins? Um, what is the next product, I think? Uh, I wouldn't say like this is the next product on a global perspective, but it's more um, in terms of diversification. We had like a first generation of plant-based meat products, which were like the sausages, the nugget, the meatball. Uh, so like reformed meat, um, if we're talking about that category specifically. Uh, and today when we're looking at consumers research in the space, the first, uh, like one of um, the results that is coming up is that consumers are looking for localized products. They are looking for more choices in terms of uh, plant-based plant or alternative meat products. So for sure, there is a need to bring more options in the shelves uh, to make sure that this um, category keeps growing and is still attra attractive to consumers. So here, what I'm talking about uh, diversifying, I would say that uh, category, I wouldn't say that this type of product will be the next, uh, you know, the next winning product, but it's more bringing more diversification. So for example, uh, the whole muscle, it, it's a, a big uh, innovation space, uh, but also seafood, daily meat. Uh, these are the type of products like that are going to bring more diversification and more choices for consumers. Uh, at the moment, for sure, fish and seafood are the trendy application. We are seeing increasing uh, numbers of launches um, on the market on a global perspective. Uh, this is showing also that manufacturers are willing to meet consumers' need for more options in the alternative meat category. Uh, and for sure, we will witness uh, many uh, other food applications coming up in the shelves in the following years. But I think it's all about bringing local products. So, um, product that people are already using, but as an alternative meat, uh, on an alternative meat perspective. Cool. And yeah, I mean, one of the one of the more interesting, when, when I was doing research for this, I, I saw that there were companies trying to develop filet mignons, plant-based filet mignons with all the sinuous and textures and, and whatnot. But also, I, I guess, uh, what about the existing products on the market? I mean, most of the products, as you mentioned, um, they are like plant-based burger patties, plant-based sausages, 
Do you see them being phased out with newer innovations? Or you know, is the alternative protein market big enough to uh, accommodate many viable, successful products? In my opinion, there is a space for both to coexist. Uh, as we are seeing this product coexisting on um, a regular meat uh, perspective, uh, I think there is also the same uh, opportunity uh, on an alternative, um, an alternative protein perspective. Um, I think it's all about bringing more choices and also always working on continuous improvement, improving texture, improving sensory experience, because we are like today when we're looking at consumer insights and, and consumer feedback, there is still um, in terms of sensory like taste and texture expectation are, are still not met. Uh, especially for plant-based plant-based um, meat, so for sure um, there is space for both. Uh, but it's all about bringing more diversification and also still working on continuous improvement and improving taste, improving texture. Awesome, thank you, Mindy. But I guess there's a big question that is still not answered: Why the diversification drive now? It seems like right now, you know, the global economy isn't do doing too well. There's a chance of recession next year. Some analysts are saying. And, and to me, it seems like in such environments, firms may want to hunker down and focus on what's already working. But of course, um, when we talk about alternative proteins, there's also the thing about slowing sales with what we have, that the products we have today. So I'm just wondering, Jennifer, if you're able to take us through, you know, what's the key driving forces here with, with the trends we are seeing? It's important to confront reality in terms of our starting point of what's going on. And what we have seen happening is retail sales being flat in certain developed markets especially in the US. In Asia, emerging markets are still growing, but from a much smaller base. And we do see strong performance in food service, so in the QSR channel specifically. But it's obviously important to address why is this happening? And of course, we have those these macro trends that are going on, and all of these uh, are interplaying not only in alternative protein, it's not immune from these forces, but it's affecting other sectors as well. I think this question that has the whole industry doubling down on is how do we succeed in such an environment? And it comes back again to product. So the inhibitors that we know are taste, price, access, increasingly um, there's reports about health. So these um, inhibitors have to be resolved. So that should be the focus of the industry. And one of the most promising avenues for that is hybrids. So I think that's why we see now it especially growing. I mean, it's always changing. And I think what we have to remember is it's not been around for very long. Right? Alternative proteins is very new. The sector is very much in its infancy. It's a very tiny percentage of, of the global meat market, which has been around for decades. So we're still very new. So it's partly about you know, when these solutions come online, but it's also, I think, the importance of really doubling down on product and how, how are we leveling up these solutions. And that's why I think hybrid, although it's a difficult time for the industry, it really has to be an avenue if it's going to have that leveling up potential that we have to I see. And, and Mindy, the question for you is, I suppose, you know, innovation and diversification is, uh, is good. Uh, I mean, we need to find new products. But the angle, I suppose, is really to find something that sticks with consumers and the market, isn't it? To me, one of the major breakthroughs I see as a consumer is um, a few years ago when we have the Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers coming up with realistic beef patties. I, I thought that was a pretty big breakthrough. And I'm just wondering, you know, in the current drive, um, 
when are we going to see the next big breakthrough that really res resonates with customers and what would that look like? I would say the environment that we are in, um, I would say it's a product that is going to uh, meet all of consumers' um, expectation for the category. So today, when I'm looking at the main reason that the categories is uh, slowing down and not growing as fast as we were expecting, I think here is like, for, first of all, price parity is key. So for sure, we have to make sure that all of these alternative products have a price that is similar to the meat. Because like today, with with the economic crisis and inflation, these products that are more expensive are going the first one that consumers will have to, you know, to to stop buying. Um, then I think sensory. Most of the consumers who are driving that category of flexitarian, we still have to try to work on bringing that sensory experience that we are having with the regular meat. And this is something that Carrie is really focusing on and, focus, and we are working on with, uh, with customers and then I would say also uh, the lack of clean labeling. This is also something that really depends on the market, but it's true that clean labeling uh, can be also one of the challenges. So I think like a product that is good, that is kind of like having these three all together will be the next high successful alternative uh, meat product. I just wanted to add two things, picking up on what you both said. So you mentioned the beyond and the impossibles. It Impossible is a hybrid product. So Impossible has hemoglobin from soy. So soy hemoglobin, which is a precision fermentation derived process. And while certain parts of the industry are, are slowing, Impossible claims that its growth is up 70% this year. So there are already, it's not like we are so far away from hybrid products, like they're already on the market and they're doing well. And if you, if I look at Impossible's prices in, in Singapore, I was at the grocery store the other day, they're now, they're now more or less at organic beef. So they've come down significantly, organic mint. So they've come down significantly. So it's not, we're so, so far away. And I also want to pick up on a really good point that, that Mindy said, which is that the most interesting question to me in, in this time of inflation is not only what's happening to alternative proteins, but what's happening to conventional meat, eggs, and dairy. And progress on price parity is obviously not only affected by, by what's happening in plant-based, but what's happening in terms of the products that people are you know, comparing it to. And evidence does suggest that the road to parity is being partly driven by inflation. So there was a report by Fair Investment Network recently that found the average price unit of plant-based meats has increased by 3% this year compared to 6% for conventional. So there's been headlines around the world in the Netherlands, for example, that certain plant-based products have now reached parity or even surpassed um, conventional. And yet to see that happen in Asia, we're still two times more expensive and more in most countries. Um, but the inflation question is going to be very interesting on that road to parity. Uh, and as these hybrid products become cheaper, like Impossible has with scale, um, then we'll see these, these come on the market. So it's not, you know, 10 years away, it's, it's here now, and it's just going to um, happen very soon. And, and it seems like the R&D process is really just continuous. I mean, if you if you didn't mention, it would have registered to me that the existing products are already kind of hybrids in, in themselves. And, and I guess just one big question left to tackle. It seems like what we're discussing now, a lot of the innovation that we're seeing in the market stems from whether um, something is technically feasible, whether something is scalable, whether it meets consumer preferences. What about climate, its initial premise of alternative proteins about 
being climate friendly, biodiversity friendly, lower on the pollution scale. Do you see them as being priorities, um, Jennifer? Yes. So there is absolutely no doubt that all of these pillars of alternative proteins are drastically more sustainable than the conventional meat, eggs, and dairy that they're trying to replace. So you talked about climate. There was a report by DCG, the when you assess impact in terms of market value of avoided CO2 equivalent emissions per dollar when you invest in mitigation solutions, alternative proteins has the highest CO2 equivalent savings of any dollar of invested capital in any sector. So three times greater than other high emitting sectors. So it, the climate solution is just enormous. And what we as GFI want to see is that being matched with the dollars that it deserves. So I think on that point, the, the climate point, there's really no debate. Um, you can maybe debate other things, you know, taste, health, whatever, but with, with sustainability, it's really a given that we need these solutions um, to transition our system. I think on top of uh, what Jennifer mentioned, I think like reducing food waste, improving yield, and also um, working on circular economy are going to be a key focus. Awesome. And we've talked about so many different things from macro to micro, different technologies, different products, different considerations. I guess a good place to end off. Can I just ask for very quick rapid fire responses from both speakers? Um, looking at the next few years, what's the biggest challenge and biggest opportunity of the alternative protein industry? Jennifer, do you understand? The biggest challenge, I would say, is affordability, especially as these new technologies come while these technologies are very exciting it's really how do we scale that and that's where we need a lot more investment not only at the end downstream innovation product level but also in the supply chain the opportunity if i if, if i could be a plant-based company what i would do is really or an alternative protein company would be obsessed over the customer so really understand segment segment again understand the value proposition understand what your product brings communicate that, really understand your niche and what you're trying to give them. That's where I think we need to get a lot more granular and a lot more understanding. And I think when we unlock that customer, you know, a lot of mysteries there, then that's when the products will scale. I would say consumer acceptance is going to be um, both like, you know, the main challenge and opportunity uh, for sure, like with all of the different technologies uh, innovation that are coming on our way. For sure, we have to make sure that manufacturers are communicating uh, to consumers in a very uh, clever way to make sure that uh, consumers are accepting these technologies and are accepting these new, um, um, these alternative proteins. So for sure, like working on the value prop, as Jennifer mentioned, really trying to understand these consumers and trying to understand how we can make sure that the positioning is the right one to make that pro these products successful will be uh, really be essential. Awesome. So it's cost customer, from what I hear from you, co uh, communications with them and also understanding. Thank you so Thank much, you. both of you, Jennifer. I mean, that was a great conversation and really excited on, on my part to see where the industry will go in the next few years. Thanks for coming on this podcast. Thank Thanks you for the opportunity. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletters. Thanks for listening.